Welcome to the Scholars and Storytellers podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Center for Scholars and Storytellers at UCLA. This episode features a conversation between Dr. Yalda T. Uhls and George Huang. Uhls is the founder and executive director of the Center for Scholars and Storytellers and an internationally recognized award-winning research scientist, educator, and author studying how media affect young people. George Huang is a professor of screenwriting at the UCLA School of Theater, Film, and Television, and an award-winning director, including his work as writer and director of the film Swimming with Sharks. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy. I'm Yelda. I'm George. <laughs> and we're here to talk about storytelling as social change, why and how stories have impact. Before we start, I just want to um, give a little shout out to our team behind the camera, Kwa Paul and Caroline, they're really working hard behind the camera to make this all happen. Thanks yes. for tuning in. They've sat through many rehearsals of this. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's begin. Let's start with Yalda. What is the Center for <laughs> Scholars and Storytellers? Well, first of all, we were very <laughs> pleased to be in the UCLA magazine. So run out and get your copy, UCLA alumni. Um, I don't think you can buy it anywhere. Or you can find an article on our website, the um, World Wide Web ScholarsAndStorytellers.com, all about our work. So what we are is a group of people who believe in the power of storytelling to shape youth development in both positive and negative ways, but we're kind of hoping it'll... Uh, lean towards the positive. So we bring together scholars and storytellers. In this instance, I'm the scholar, although George is too. (laughs) He's the storyteller. Uh, Um, But I was a former storyteller, which we'll get to. And um, we try to find shared goals and research agendas and ways that we can use um, the science of how storytelling impacts kids to help improve youth outcomes. So our vision is, and I'm just going to read it off of our website, (laughs) unlocking the power of storytelling to help the next generation thrive and grow. So I have one little thing to give you an example of what my aha was. So we started in January of this year. We have a group of collaborators of over 50 research scientists from around the world who work with us. And we started um, because we realized, I realized there was all this incredible research out there that um, storytellers don't have access to. And they don't understand. It's, it's either it's, it's behind paywalls, it's hard to read. As George just said, he was reading a peer-reviewed article and fell asleep on the first page. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this study looked at the show Clifford the Red Dog. And I don't know if I've told you about this. Yes, I'm sure you do. So this was a study done by Mary Louise Mayer and colleagues. And she basically was interested in whether this story would teach the kids that were watching the show um, to be inclusive. So there was a character in the show, a dog that had a disability, a physical disability, came to the neighborhood and everybody was scared of playing with Mm -hmm. this dog. They thought they could catch the disease, they thought they could um, break this dog's leg further, and Mary Louise and colleagues decided to ask the kids what they thought um, the message of the show was after it was done. And guess what they thought the message was? 
get a four-legged dog? Ha! No. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. They all were worried uh-huh. that if they played with somebody, a dog or a person that had a handicap, that they would also either, um, they, they went into fear. They were worried they'd actually catch something, that they'd hurt the person. So they got the exact opposite message of wow. the story. So what ended up happening, and when they further broke it down, they realized the show had nine minutes of mm-hmm. fear in it which was, you know, all the fear, all the different storylines, and one and a half minute of inclusivity, everything's great, wrap-up. They took out the fear, uh-huh. put in a different storyline, just a plain storyline, and replayed it for kids, and with that, they got the actual message of the show. Oh, wow. So okay. the whole point of that is that fear for very young kids is very, very challenging for them to process. So if a storyteller puts fear, which is a common storytelling mechanism. It is. No, it is a tool that you want to use to heighten suspense. Exactly. To get points across. It, it can be a very powerful tool. Exactly. But for little kids, especially when it overwhelms the storyline, they may only focus on that and they may not get your message. So there's research like that out there in the world that I felt was important to share with storytellers. No, absolutely. Because as a storyteller, you know, our intent is not to, you know, want people to avoid the three-legged dog. Yes, exactly. We want them to embrace the three-legged dog. And I think in our, you know, efforts to make that point, we, you know, might employ some storytelling techniques that aren't suitable uh, for younger audiences. And there are different ways to tell it as well. Right. Totally. Mm -hmm. So um, now we're going to segue into telling you a little bit about our backgrounds. George, why don't you give your background? Well, um, gosh, uh, I started out as an assistant at the studios, and uh, that's where I first met Yalda. Um, That was some 20 years ago. (laughs) We were 10. Uh, Yeah, we were 10, exactly. (laughs) Little babies in the industry. Um, And uh, I took my experiences of being an assistant in Hollywood and made a movie about that uh, called Swimming with Sharks. And, Excellent movie. <laughs> and since that time... And we know who the character was, the real person. <laughs> uh, the character was purely fictitious. Uh, any <laughs> resemblance to persons living or dead, purely coincidental. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, so um, since that time, I've been working in the industry, uh, in film, in TV, uh, streaming. Um, I do a lot of rewrite work for directors like Robert Rodriguez and Luke Besson. Uh, I've been a writer on Law and Order SVU, um, and when Yalda first approached me about you know, setting up the Center for Scholars and Storytelling, um, you know what sort of appealed to me was not only a chance to work with you again, you know, after 20 years, uh, but the fact that I now have a four and five year old, uh, you know, four and five year old boys, and look, they get a lot more media than they should. I know that. No, it's okay. <laughs> Even after reading your book, <laughs> Digital Moms and Digital, what is Media it? Moms and Media Digital Moms Dads. and Digital Dads. This is Dads. not meant to be a plug that, for yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> plug, plug. You know, we all wrote a great book uh, sort of surveying, you know, how we should be looking, you know, or watching media with our kids. Um, and so when this opportunity came along to sort of like use storytelling, you know, in, because let's be honest, you know, a lot of us, we use media to help raise our kids, to, you know, Tell stories that we hope will shape them, um, and you know. So, in positive es- yeah, ways. yeah. So establishing a center that will, you know, help us do it correctly, I, I think is definitely you know a great resource uh, to have out there. Well, and as actually, I was talking to a kid from YouTube, somebody mm-hmm. who works at YouTube, great kid, 
and he's working with kids and families. Um, and, and there are a lot of people, a lot of writers who write content for kids. Right. They don't have kids. They right. don't have PhDs in child development. They're incredible writers yeah. and storytellers, and they're funny, and they know how to engage, but they may not understand child development. And that's mm. what we're hoping to help with. So, so my background is I spent 15 years in the film business, started with George, <laughs> was at MGM and Sony, last job was senior vice president at MGM, and then stepped off, had my own two children, a girl and a boy, and went back to school here at UCLA to get a PhD in child development. And I studied how media impacts kids, how it affects kids. And um, as I was doing that, I was realizing um, that there's a lot of this great research that I didn't think storytellers knew about, the people in industry I thought would be interested in it. And because um, I was, had been in the storytelling business, um, Lisa Henson um, offered to throw an event at the Henson Studios, and we brought together a whole bunch of um, scholars and a whole bunch of children's TV writers, and we talked about the research, and they loved it. And because of that, um, I got the inspiration to start the Center for Scholars and Storytellers. So now I do research here at UCLA. I teach a class called Digital Media and Human Development, um, and I run the center. Now, you were also involved in Common Sense Media, right? And Common okay. Sense Media, yeah. yeah so, so Common Sense Media is a great nonprofit. Um, I launched their LA office, and I've worked with them as an advisor. Um, and um, can ask any questions about that too. We're hoping <laughs> you will ask questions, and at some point, we're going to read a couple of the questions that have come in um, to us over or in advance. Um, but first. I'm going to give some examples about the power of storytelling. And as you know, if you're just tuning in, it's storytelling is social change, why and how stories have impact. I'm Dr. Yelda T. Ools. And I'm George Wong. <laughs> professor at UCLA. Um, so I'm going to give you three examples of why stories are very powerful and why they're an incredible mechanism for social change. Um, one of them is about um, a study. This was an actual randomized controlled experiment where they took two different pieces of content, an 11-minute movie mm -hmm. right. and 11-minute documentary. And both of them had the same information in them about um, cervical cancer. And they decided to play each of them for different audiences and measure whether it changes for information, mm -hmm. knowledge around it, but also around behavior, um, especially with African-American women and sure. Latinx women um, who traditionally don't go to get pap, pap smears as much as upper um, uh, highly educated um, Caucasian women. Mm -hmm. So this, these two, um, these two sh short films were one was a documentary and one was a fictional story were shown. And the fictional story actually led even six months after mm -hmm. the, they were both shown to a greater in increase for African-American women and Latinx women mm -hmm. going to get pap smears. Wow. Wow. And the audience for that was probably, it's an older demographic, right? Yeah. So and we're talking adults. about people who are informed, adults who, you know, are responsible, can make responsible yeah. decisions. So. If a narrative film yeah. has the power to do that, imagine what it can do for young children whose minds are still developing, yeah. who still haven't quite grasped the idea of responsibility and you know what the world has for them. Yeah. So yeah, that's no, amazing. But, and it's very powerful for you know older people as well. I mean, really. But the focus that we do at the Center for Scholars and Storytellers is actually adolescents because we believe that adolescents 
Um, there is, it's a time of um, when they're seeking their identity, they're figuring out who they are, their brains are highly flexible, they're sort of making their way out to the world, they're paying more attention to their friends, they're paying less attention to the adults, <laughs> and they're paying more attention to media. So it's a really powerful time to get to kids. And that goes to my second example. So this one was not a research study. There is no actual proof of this, but um, there is a correlation, possibly. Um, so the implicit association tests where they test unconscious bias, during the years that Obama was president, they tested whether unconscious race bias went down. This was between 2008 to 2016. There was no change in unconscious race bias, even though we had an African-American president. What? What? Are you kidding? I Come think on. we may That's... know that now, okay. but back in 2016, everybody That's was insane. shocked. insane, because, yeah, no, I mean, he's been held up as an example of, okay, look, we're making progress. Yep. We're living now in a post-racial society. Yep. But. No, we're no. not, and oh there was no God. change. At the oh. same time, however, mm -hmm. they measured LGBTQ bias, unconscious bias, and they found that that bias was reduced by 13%. So what was okay. going on in the culture then that was actually shaping, changing social norms, making this, um, this change in unconscious bias hmm. or implicit biases be so powerful? I don't know. Was the Obama administration doing anything? Please! What? <laughs> what? They actually say it's media representation. Okay. That was right. one of the things that they believe. And uh -huh. Glee is an adolescent show. It changed okay. social norms. It, mm -hmm. it, it made... Um, it, it had a character that people fell in love with yeah. um, that made kids sort of really identify with that kid. So, and these characters, and they believe that this contributed. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there was Will and Grace, Pretty Little Liars, all these different sort of ways that they were just normalizing LGBTQ. Um, so, so this shows the power, and particularly at this age, the power of this kind of representation. So a singing and dancing show on Fox was more formative than the president of the United States. Exactly. Good takeaway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna, before I give my last example, what about writing as a superpower? Mm -hmm. Tell us all about that. Well, I mean, you know, I think that example, you know, it's like, look, um, growing up as a kid, like everyone's, oh, you know, let's go, you know, the, the aspiration was, let's become president of the United States. Um, but, you know, writing is a legitimate way to change and shape the world as well. You know, it's our superpower. I mean, we often hear that, look, history is written by the winners, but no, it's not. History is written by the writers. <laughs> um, you know, there have been recent studies that show that, you know, storytelling can actually affect the brain. Um, that the emotions that we can, you know, um, conjure up with a good narrative, you know, releases certain endorphins and adrenaline, dopamine into our brains that helps facts stick. Um, Unfortunately, they can be used as a supervillain power, you know, uh, hence the rise of fake news. <laughs> yeah. But it can also be a power that can be used for good. Hi, listeners. We hope that you're enjoying this episode of the Scholars and Storytellers podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review us and share it with your friends. Your support is greatly appreciated. Now, back to the conversation. Dr. Ools, this is... I'm George Wong. Professor George uh, Warren. It's kind of funny for me to say that. I it's know still George. still new for me, too. So. When, <laughs> so last but not least, there's one more example, and this came from the State of Social Impact, which was a report put out by the Skoll Social, um, Social Impact Center, um, which is housed in Georgia's department. 
Um, and they found all these different examples, and they had writers and actors and all these different people talk about why stories have power. But this was an actual piece of research within that about day after tomorrow. So day after tomorrow, anyone remember that? I'm assuming you do. Yeah, it was one of the Roland Emmerich, uh, you know, because he blew up the White House in Independence Day. So he decided, <laughs> I'm going to blow up the whole world in day after tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, it was basically a look at, you know, um, the worst case scenario of climate change yep. when basically the Earth rebels against us. And, yeah. yeah. And this was done a long time ago, 15 mm-hmm. years ago. So, yeah. so right, 2004, I think. Yeah. So um, basically they, they measured um, climate change attitudes and beliefs between the people that saw the movie and the people that didn't see the movie. And the people that saw the movie thought that climate change, they, they increased their um, thoughts about it being real. They believed that what happened in the movie was a more imminent risk. They um, really sort of um, understood, and there was a lot more conversation in the um, web environment at that point and stories around climate change. And they actually measured it. It showed larger changes in attitudes, beliefs, and behavioral attentions around climate change for watchers and non-watchers. Which and, and a lot the largest changes were around the storyline topics. So this was a piece of popcorn entertainment, really meant mm-hmm. to like entertain and make lots of box office, and it did. And yet it was able, it was incredibly powerful and measured as a way to measurably change people's attitudes. Now, when that now we're in a world where you can actually watch a piece of content and possibly also talk about it on social media. So there's a way to sort of, and if you plan ahead, you you tell a story, you have a piece of content about a certain topic, and then you... Um, and then you do a social media campaign around it, or you try to have link people to resources, there may be even more opportunities for impact. I mean, that's kind of what Participant Pictures is all about, creating social impact campaigns Mm -hmm. around um, the content. That's where we are now, and that's where we're hoping we'll be. That's great. So now I'm going to go to... Should we go to questions? Questions. All right. So my first one was (laughs) submitted by, um, this was submitted in advance, and I'm really sorry if I say people's names wrong, by Hermione Lake Locke. Locke. And I think this is for George. (laughs) Have you read Freud on storytelling, where he remarks on the ability of children to tell stories in order to fix or understand their world? And why do you think that storytelling is seen as a soft subject when authors are novices or studying the humanities? And only when they become famous and well-known is creativity, oh, this is a long one, is creativity truly appreciated or given any form of kudos, particularly in the West? Wow. Um, That's a long one. There's (laughs) lots to unpack there. Okay, so Freud on storytelling. Uh, So, Hermione, I'm not familiar with that text. Um, I am familiar, though, with there's um, a book by uh, Bruno Bettelheim uh, called The Magical Uses of Enchantment, and I believe he was a disciple of Freud. And basically he breaks down all of Grimm's fairy tales as a sort of coping mechanism for children, as a way to expose them to the dangers of the world and, um, and help them process some of the fears that they may have of the unknown oh, cool. um, and the dangers out there. No, absolutely. And um, fortunately, it's 
come under some scrutiny in the most recent years because he's been accused of plagiarism and oh, yeah, okay. so it's like, uh-oh. <laughs> well, we actually, I'm just going to give a plug to on our site, on Story Insights, in that section we have research-driven insights for storytellers mm -hmm. and we actually have a professor, Daphne Lemnish, who wrote a article on fears, oh, fears okay. around the world right. and how to um, help children sort of process their fears. Mm -hmm. um, and she spoke to hundreds of kids around the world and adults to try to understand what they remembered right. from, like, do you remember the time you were most scared watching something? Mm -hmm. yeah. And then sort of trying to address that through mm -hmm. storytelling. Yeah, um, and so yeah, if you take a look at a lot of like Grimm's fairy tales, they are really dark and bleak and they're not happy endings. Um, God, I remember when I went to film school, uh, you know, they showed Little Mermaid um, and the filmmakers came to talk to the students and one of the students actually asked, it's like, well, in the original Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, the Little Mermaid dies, why did you not stick to the original ending? And the filmmakers just sort of sat there and said, it's a Disney picture. We can't kill the Little Mermaid. <laughs> but in doing so, I, you know, one of the points that Bruno Bettelheim wanted to make was that it sort of, you know, by giving him the happy ending, it takes away their ability to process or how to, you know, get through fear, get through danger, the fact that it is out there, um, and that they will survive it somehow. Um, but so this see, is a very telling. And, and, but right. that is, mm -hmm. if you go back to what I told you about the Clifford right. the Red Dog yeah. example, exactly. right? Yep. So that is yeah, the traditional no. way storytelling exactly. started. Fear, right? Fear, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. But what we're finding is that if you focus, if the, and right. perhaps you know, that fear was necessary mm -hmm. back then. Like right. maybe you didn't want your kid to go out in the mm -hmm. woods, right? There were certain things that you really wanted them. It, it actually had a real world behavioral um, message it was trying right. to get out. But no. they're not necessarily the same messages you need to get out now. Yeah. And exactly. little kids will focus on the fear. Right. Mm -hmm. but, it, but, you know, um, do you think in sort of like, you know, trying to make these stories safer by giving them the happy ending where everything resolves? is a better way to get that message across or, you know, because um, this is very telling in the last presidential election, mm -hmm. um, you know, I saw a study where young voters weren't turning out because they fit, you know, they were raised on Harry Potter, yeah. you know, where they, or in Star Wars, where they believe good always wins out. So they didn't yeah. need to do it. They didn't take any agency because in their minds, they've been trained by these stories that good <laughs> will always prevail. Yeah. And so, came a big shock to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, when, yeah. As a scientist, mm -hmm. I have to say, exactly. that's a leap. That seems like a I know, it seems like a leap, yeah, 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 but, you know. But at um, the same time, I totally get right. it, and mm -hmm. it may not, I mean, I'm only saying for a certain age group. Right. So with adolescents and young mm -hmm. people, maybe those cautionary tales are more powerful. Yeah. We don't know yeah, yet. There isn't absolutely. research on that. We're mm -hmm. hoping we can do research at some point on right. this. But for young kids, there have been many studies mm -hmm. that have shown that if you smuggle in a message wrapped in fear, mm -hmm. the good the chance is the young child will not get the message you're right. intending. Okay. So interesting. Okay. Um, and then see the okay. second part is okay. So well known for creative creativity. So okay, yeah. So yeah, it it's tough. So you know, I, I can just relate personally my own story. So um, you know, my parents are immigrants from Taiwan. You know, they came over here with nothing. Um, and so, you know, their biggest fear has always been, how are you going to provide for a family? How are you going to provide? How are you going to, you know, make ends meet? Um, and so when I told them, you know, I wanted to be a writer, 
they just sort of looked at me and said, no, you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer, <laughs> something that gets a steady salary that you can support a family, you know. Uh, but it was something I truly passionately wanted to do, which is why, you know, um, I went to business school before <laughs> I went to film school because, you know, I had that's to. That's what you're supposed to Yeah, that's what I you're supposed to, to do. Exactly, too. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I was able to persuade my parents, look, I can always fall back on accounting yeah. if I need to, <laughs> but give me a couple years to at least try this, please, because this is what I really want to do. And so very begrudgingly. Is that when I met? You? Yeah, mm-hmm. yep. yeah. They let In those me couple of years. exactly <laughs> let me sort of go out and try to explore the world of you know storytelling entertainment. Um, despite the fact that you know this is what I've been doing as a career for the last twenty years, um, you know they still haven't told any of my family or friends what I do for a living. <laughs> You know? <laughs> yeah, they don't say, oh, he's a aren't writer. They, aren't they proud of you as being a professor? Well, that's now? the thing. That's that's when they, this is, yeah. So when UCLA finally hired me as a professor of screenwriting, this is when they started handing out my business cards to friends and family. Yeah. Now, beforehand, it was like, you know, well, what's George doing? Oh, he just bought a house. He's good. <laughs> yeah. They, you know, I, I don't know if it's a shame or something, but, you know, the idea that storytelling, you know, gives you some sort of satisfaction that it's entertainment, it feels more like a pleasure than hard work. Um, and it's interesting, you know, I've been doing um, a lot of work uh, with Chinese financiers now because a lot of the money uh, from China is coming in. But, you know, even in that culture, they don't quite understand the, the worth behind storytelling because, you know, so like, okay, so we'll go, we'll pitch idea, hey, we're going to do this and this and this. And that. That's great. Go do it. Yeah. It's like, okay, so uh, we got to negotiate the payments. It's like, well, why would we pay you? It's like, because it's my time, <laughs> it's like you know. But they come from you know, an, you know, a, a farming society, a manufacturing society. Their attitude is we. It's not a hard good. Right. If we can't hold it in our hands, right. if we can't go in and put it on a market shelf somewhere and sell it, what is its worth? And you know, I think you find that internationally across the board in a lot um, uh, of different economies. Um, but that being said. You know, those economies still want to be part of the storytelling. They want yeah. to get involved. Yeah. They just can't, haven't quite figured out how to place a value on yeah. it. Yeah, and, and it's it funny difficult. because storytelling, mm-hmm. even, you know, just as something that can help um, anyone in any career has right. started to become more valued yeah. because we understand that we have to tell stories to the public yeah. and we have government people asking us to help yeah. them with t- no, storytelling. And it's been sort of like the dirty little secret yeah. in business. You yeah. know? Well, in fact, our old yeah. boss, Peter Goober, yeah. wrote that big yes. business book, Tell to Win, you yeah. know, how you can influence, <laughs> you know, make millions but with storytelling. And he was a teacher at UCLA. Yeah, and, well, he's still, like, I think the like chair emeritus. Or, oh, yeah, so he's still involved. But, yeah. Um, yeah, no, he makes a very valid point. I mean, take a look commercials, the commercials that, you know, have the impact that, you know, get your kids to say, buy me that cereal, buy me that toy, are the ones that tell the best stories, because those are the stories that stick, you know, so, yeah, so that's sort of been the dirty little secret. Yeah, and (laughs) I do have to say, I mean, even in psychology, when Mm -hmm. I started getting my degree in 2009, um, no, there were very few psychologists that believed that media was something that would actually impact children. Right. And even then, you know, it was sort of the, the, the dirty sort of small, nobody was very interested in taking on students like that and even studying it. Cut to 10 years later, now we're in a world where children watch up to nine hours, watch and consume media, including music, up to nine hours every day right. outside of school. Mm-hmm. And... Um, <laughs> And um, now they're taking it seriously. Yeah. They're completely, completely um, sold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it used to be a treat. You know, it used to be like a rare thing. You'd have to 
get in your car and go yeah. out to a movie theater and see something or, you know, broadcast wait for TV be and wait for, yeah, be on live television. <laughs> yeah. You know, now everything's on demand. It's at our fingertips. You know, my four-year-old knows how to access YouTube. My parents can't figure it out. But my, my, you know, my four-year-old can grab my phone and find the exact video he wants on yeah. YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime he wants. Yeah. And I don't know if you've had this experience, maybe not. When my kid was young, uh -huh. what she tried to do, she was watching live TV, and she tried yeah. to fast-forward it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. No. So there's, it's a whole exactly. new world yeah. we now. We just stayed at a hotel, and yeah. they couldn't understand why I couldn't go back yeah. on the TV. It's like, we're at a hotel. This is on our TV. It's not recording. They, yeah. they didn't understand that. Yeah, yeah. They wanted it on demand. They wanted their show on demand. It's like, yeah. No, this this is just live TV. Yeah, they they didn't understand that. Anymore, yeah. So, <laughs> so um, mm -hmm. if you're just tuning in, this is storytelling as social change: how and why stories have impact. And we would love any questions. We have yes. a few we're going to share. Um, but if you have any questions about anything we're talking about, please um, send them in, and we'd be happy to answer them live while we're filming this. Um, so. I'm going to read you another question that oh, just came okay. in from Brian McCauley. Um, as a screenwriting professor, how do you encourage students to engage in informed and mm -hmm. socially responsible storytelling without being too preachy or encroaching on a burgeoning writer's creative voice? Right. Such an important question. Yes, no, no, and especially in these times. I mean, yeah, we live in, look, I mean, some people say it's too sensitive. Some people say, you know, we're developing a sense of awareness. Um, look, here at UCLA, the big, biggest thing we want to teach our screenwriters is to develop your own voice. You know, yeah. stay true to your own authentic voice. You know, you know, look, we saw this in the studios, you know, when we're working there. Like, you know, a lot of times creatively, you're going to try to get pushed to the middle because you want to appeal yeah. to as broad and as an audience as possible. But as a writer, when you're writing, I can't anticipate what you would want to see, what yeah. you would find funny, what you would you know, want to tune into. The only audience I know for certain is myself. So you write for your voice, for your audience. That being said, you know, we all have blind spots you know, that we're not aware of until someone in the room points it out to us, uh, which is why, you know, as a screenwriting professor, you know, we workshop the pages, we, you know, the writers will bring it in, uh, they read it to, we read it out loud to seven or eight of the other students, and they're able to point out things that they bump up against or they find offensive that as a writer, you know, we didn't even think about. Um, and then it's on you as a writer to figure out, okay, is it, if enough people are telling you, no, no, don't do that, it's something to consider. Um, yeah, an example, um, uh, we, we had, I had a student who was writing a uh, piece, a period piece uh, in Alaska, uh, sort of about, you know, the, the settling of that territory. And um, in it he wrote, it, the pilot started out with a rape scene, you know, uh, of a Native American. Um, and, you know, it became sort of the incident that would launch the investigation and, you know, the whole long arc of uh, that season. Um, when I read it, I thought it was, yeah, it's completely fine. Um, every girl in the room pointed out, we are so tired of rape being a narrative device, mm. you know, just to move things across. And, yeah, it was something the writer wasn't aware of. It was something that I wasn't aware of, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I just think it helps to have diverse other voices in the room mm -hmm. that can point out mm -hmm. certain blind spots that you're not aware of. Because, look, it was not the writer's intent mm -hmm. to offend <laughs> a female not. audience. But if there's another way to kick off the things besides a rape, you know, yeah, then yeah. let's investigate that. Yeah, yeah. so, um, yeah, I think... 
you know, authenticity, write to yourself, write what, in, you know, what speaks to you, but also be curious about having other people weigh in with their mm -hmm. opinions, you mm -hmm. know, uh, and be respectful of that. And, and another thing I can say, Don Cheadle, I had a project with him once yeah. when I was a producer, and we had a project that was, um, actually it was about slavery, yet it was a horror movie. So um, okay. basically <laughs> we, we had um, imagery about slavery and, and the character sort of learned about slavery, but it was a straight up horror story with jump cuts and everything. Mm -hmm. And he said, this is what you do. You smuggle the message in. Yeah. And that's what we're hoping yeah. is, and at the center what we do is we really hope and we, we believe that we understand the storytelling mindset. We have people that have been in the industry for a long time working here with us. Um, we, we want and understand the first goal is to get the biggest audience ever. So how do you get that audience? You, you write for yourself, mm -hmm. you write truth, you write authenticity. This generation cares more about authenticity oh, yeah. than any other generation. They care about social impact. They're the most, under nine years old, are majority minority, so they're very diverse. So you really, to get that audience, you have to make sure that you um, are actually, in some way, smuggling in sm social impacts, smuggling in um, diversity, inclusivity, you know, equity, trying to bring in all these different stories. Plus, we're at the point where so many, I mean, thank God for YouTube on some level, all these different <laughs> stories are being told right. that nobody, I was reading about Lily Singh, you know, mm -hmm. who is now gonna have a talk show and she started on YouTube, you know, 20, 30, 20 years ago, there were no, there were gatekeepers. There were only yep. certain people. Now everybody can put their show on the air and they find an audience. And we're seeing that, you know, African-American movies can play overseas. Yep. Asians, um, there right. is a large audience, mm -hmm. you know. Yep. So all these different things that um, you want to do. And, and the larger... The more you can appeal to this generation um, through telling your own story and making sure it has all the beats that it needs to right. have, the better. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, you know, be curious about other people's stories as well. Be curious about the world, you know. Yeah. Because I'll be honest, as a writer, you know, I'm big on research. You know, I love doing tons and tons of research. In fact, you know, I often have to like put a limit on myself because I'll never get to writing. I'll just like do deep dives into uh, subjects. But you know, it's been in my experience that the truth outflanks fiction every single time. Yeah. You know, you'll always come across this nugget, this, you know, like, moment or story that you could have never come up with on your own, right. and it's a truth, and that makes it really powerful. Right. Right. Even in just one of our conferences, um, you know, I sat at the foster care table, yeah. and Mary this Gil... Is a, this is a... Um, to talk to you real quickly, give sure. you some yeah, context absolutely. on the foster care table. <laughs> um, we have thrown several events where we bring together scholars and storytellers, and this year we're working on five different issues. Um, and that UCLA magazine will talk to you about the foster care work we're doing. Um, Colleen Russo Johnson's working on it, and so Marion Gilfile and George and I. Um, so one of the things is foster cares. We're work, working on gender roles for boys, mental health, unconscious bias, inclusivity, and diversity. Um, and character strengths. So mm -hmm. at this workshop, right. we brought so, together people yeah, in foster care. In foster care, and Maren Guilford was talking about, yeah, so there was this one foster kid who was having tensions at the household that he was placed at with a biological kid there. And, you know, I thought, okay, well, it's because, oh, yeah, he's a stranger. He's coming in. Or, you know, not sharing the toys. You know, what's going on? Um, it turned out the biological kid was jealous of the foster kid not the other way around. And so, well, what could the biological kid have been possibly been jealous of? Well, it turns out the foster kid 
was getting weekly monitor visits to make sure. <laughs> yeah. And the biological kids are like, where are my weekly monitor visits? <laughs> you know, and it's like, it's such a wonder. You up. can't make that up. But it's such, <laughs> it, it, of course a kid <laughs> would think like that. Why is someone else getting something out? It's like, you want a weekly monitor visit? <laughs> yeah. The, yeah, yeah. But it's, so, I mean, human nature, yeah, is yeah. always surprising. But, it, you know, but again, that's an authentic story. I could have never come up with my yeah. own, but it's so yeah. amusing and it's such a, a great twist that, yeah, yeah, I would have never figured that on my own. And so, yeah, so having, you know, being at a table with someone who could relay that to me yeah. is so, you know, meaningful. It's so powerful and it's just great stories that you can use, you know, in a script. Yeah, yeah and one of the things we're trying to do with that foster care work is to improve and normalize representations of foster care youth and those that work with them because they're often written as such high stakes and conflict and, oh, they've got the drug addict mom and blah, blah, blah. But instead, most of these children, um, and there's a high need for um, being foster parents in, in Los Angeles County in particular. Um, so we're trying to get that message across. But we're, there is most of these kids feel um, they just want to be represented just like any other kid. You know, yeah. they mm-hmm. want the biological kid to be right. jealous of them. You know? <laughs> they, and so we're trying to help get that message out to mm-hmm. content creators. So we got a question from Facebook by Kat Smith. Um, do you want to read it? Sure. Uh, I'm wondering about their views on point of view. If you want to affect change, is it necessary to take a side or is it possible to tackle a provocative subject while trying to remain neutral so as to attract audiences from both sides of the political spectrum? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, look, any good storytelling relies on conflict. You know, you want to be able, you know, to have some friction because that's what keeps, you know, the sparks alive in a story. Um, if I were just to present one thesis and say, oh, no, this is all good, 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 good. You know, that's kind of boring. That gets yep. into that sort of documentary versus narrative thing. But if there's someone pushing back, you know, but someone articulating another point of view that's just as valid, then that's where some interesting stuff can happen. Yeah. No, absolutely. I would say that's the power of storytelling. The power of storytelling is that you can have accurate information and hopefully balanced information um, combined with emotion. Because emotion actually moves the needle a lot more, and that's that narrative versus, and that that was shown in, that's been shown over and over again. Um, You know, in that Day After Tomorrow study, they looked at um, whether the movie changed perceptions and attitudes around climate change or news stories around the same time. And the movie was much more powerful (laughs) than the news stories um, because, in a way, it feels neutral. A story feels neutral. Um, A documentary usually has a point of view, even though it's supposed to be neutral. Um, You know, and even though a news story is supposed to be neutral, too, we all know that um, each station has its own political slant. Um, So a story is supposed to be neutral. And I, I think, in fact... When you're trying to reach a certain audience, um, and let's say it's a political audience, um, you know, Republicans and Democrats watch different shows. There is a study out of um, USC, um, the Paley Center, that looked at the shows that uh, Republicans and Democrats watch. So if you're trying to move the needle in a point of view with one party versus another, to tell a story that a Republican watched Um, and making it feel neutral and smuggling in the message with emotion 
That's a very powerful way to do it. And if you're doing it for an adolescent who may not really be sure of their political beliefs, they're trying to figure it out, they're about to go off to college, they're pushing mom and dad away, that's even more powerful. And if you combine it with social media or you know, websites, you know, places where they can actually do something about what they get to see on screen, um, which we're actually starting to test, um, that is, we believe, one of the most powerful ways. And ditto for Democrat, you know? No, I mean, the idea is, look, you know, great storytelling relies on conflict. You want to have voices, you know, colliding with each other. No one, you know, Richard Walter, who founded the screenwriting program here, has a famous saying, is like, nobody wants to see a movie about a village of happy people. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, he's right. That would be boring. <laughs> if everyone agreed, yeah, I agree with you. You're absolutely right. And discussion. Yeah, where's the fight? Okay, great. We're we're done. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. So yeah. yeah, conflict opposing points opposing points of view are valid because that helps tell stories. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think you're supposed to read uh, the okay, red. Okay. So let's see. Our next question is from Instagram by Kids Media Mom. If you two could collaborate on any research study at any budget, what would it be? Wow. Hmm. So I, okay. since I think I'm supposed to answer that, and then you okay. can, you can okay. jump in. Mm-hmm. I would really love to start to measure some of these ideas um, around watching a piece of content, looking at the social media conversation around the piece of content, and then coming up with some sort of campaign or some place where the people that are watching it, adolescents, tweens, teens, could then go to learn more about the topic or to do some kind of social action. I'd love to sort of understand what's the best way to do that. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we are doing something like that. We okay. were very generously funded um, by SMART, uh, S-M-A-H-R-T, um, to look at 13 Reasons Why, season three, which is coming out in two days. And we're actually um, have 150 um, adolescents, we're hoping, that will watch the show and we'll have a control group and actual... Mm-hmm group of um, kids watching it, adolescents, and we're going to do a pre and a post survey to try to understand what they're learning from the show. At the same time, we're going to create a social media campaign, um, and we're going to measure um, that's tied to topics in the show. We're going to measure those, and we're going to do a social listening um, uh, campaign and work with a company to understand the conversation that's going on around that. I would love to do that. Right. With a movie, yeah. I would love to do that with more television. Mm-hmm. I'd love to smuggle in the message in um, <laughs> a particular piece of content um, tied to one political party or not. Um, I'd love to do all sorts of things. Yeah. You want to talk about, did we talk about some of the things we've covered in the workshop? The, sure. We, yeah, so so obviously foster care, but we've, you know, in mental health, you talked about yep. 13 reasons why. We've also been studying what, unconscious bias. Yep. Yeah, um, so... You know, we've been creating, what, you've been creating short training modules targeted specifically for content creators to help them understand why and how to combat their own unconscious biases. Yes, so we're working Mm -hmm. with um, experts in that arena in unconscious bias, and we're creating, um, and we're talking to several studios who are interested in getting our um, content, uh, creating this sort of training modules just for content creators, mm-hmm. so people who are creative and trying to un- help them understand why right. it's important to do this. Mm-hmm. Not only because it's the right thing to do, but as you said, that's yeah. kind of boring. Right. It's also because <laughs> the audience will relate to it. It's also mm-hmm. because, um, you know, 
here are the real world things that can happen when you get it wrong. You know, there's a study that mm-hmm. looked at four different groups, boys, girls, white girls, black girls, mm-hmm. white boys, black boys. One year of watching TV. Um, I think yeah. this was Nicole Martin's. The okay. pers- after one year of watching TV, there was only one group out of those four groups mm-hmm. that their s- global self-esteem was improved the more the TV they watched. Which group do you think it was? White boys. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good guess. <laughs> so, I mean, what does that tell you? You know, they saw more <laughs> right. of themselves represented on screen mm-hmm. in positive ways while these other groups didn't. And, you know, I don't think any of us want to hurt children's self-esteem, do we? So, right. so these things are important. And we mm-hmm. also are trying to give strategies. So I'm going to give you one strategy, okay. which I haven't shared. Maybe I've shared with you. Right. Counter-stereotypical narrative. Wow, that's a mouthful. But I know okay, it's a very academic stereotypical <laughs> narrative. Yeah, what is an acronym for that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no. We need an acronym. So, but basically, what they've done, uh-huh. and and this is sort of goes to our gender roles for boys' work too. But mm-hmm. what they've seen is that if you want to improve um, racial sort of representation, mm-hmm. and you show if you show an African American hero. That's going to, you know, be a positive um, and, and move. And they've actually tested around unconscious bias. It actually yeah. changes um, unconscious bias and it reduces unconscious race bias. The, the best thing to do, though, right. if you want to have the most impact is uh-huh. not just show an African-American hero, but also show a Caucasian villain together. Uh, okay. That takes it up to 40 percent mm-hmm. of um, a change in unconscious bias okay. with just moving one um, so moving one piece on the puzzle board isn't enough. You have to yeah. Yeah, yeah. move all the pieces yeah. around. Okay. And the same thing has to happen with um, mm-hmm. um, girls and boys. You know, we put right. a lot of attention into girls. Right. Gender roles is something else that we've yeah. been talking about in yep. these workshops and studying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And changing representations of boys, too, yeah. who, you know, toxic masculinity is actually related to um, more suicide ideation, depression. So let's give them more rounded representation right. along with showing girls and counter-stereotypical, stronger, um, together. The two together will actually move the needle the best. Right. No, absolutely. And look, you know, it, despite all the studies, we still have to get that information out to the people who make these decisions, you know, even at the table, you know, because we were, you know, I'll be honest, I sort of a little mean <laughs> and called out some of the studios on this and, yep. you know, said, hey, you know, wh- you know, because why are you making these changes? Yep. Why aren't you, like, you know, embracing more diverse gender roles, and, you know, to their credit, they defended, like, look, there was one a development executive, she was talking about, she was championing a, a car show for girls, mm-hmm. you know, and she was taking it as far as she possibly could, but marketing and merchandising mm-hmm. said, no, no, girls will never play with cars. Mm-hmm. Switch it back to boys. Which is, you know, which is so Because it's tied to the toy industry. Yeah, and I think, no, like, and, and then... Which is why we have to get this information out to not only content creators, but to marketing, to merchandising, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah, the idea yeah. that, you know, no, we have to make this show about cars solely for boys because of the play patterns. It's like, girls play with cars, too. <laughs> and we know? need to see boys yeah. playing with dolls, by oh, yeah. the way. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I, I think I told you this story. So my four- and five-year-old, they're obsessed with Disney princesses, you know. They wear dresses Fabulous. all the time. <laughs> and they, they sing Let It Go. They're wearing crowns. And, <laughs> yeah, but it, it's really... You know, and Do you I, feel uncomfortable? Tell the truth. No, no. I only started to feel uncomfortable when other dads yeah. and moms came up to me at school and said, like, I really admire what you're doing. 
and go, what am I doing? I'm not doing it. <laughs> but you're know, just letting them be themselves. If that's yeah. what, you know, that entertains them, if that's what excites them, that's what they're passionate about, yeah, pursue their passion. You want to stand on top of the stairs in a dress and sing Let It Go? How yeah. about it? But the sad mm-hmm. thing is they're going to start paying attention to yeah, the exactly. other kids and that's now. A thing and that, gonna... Yeah, that's the thing that worries me because, you know, we're getting it. No, you know, look, if I'm getting it from the parents, yeah. you know, I can only imagine what they're facing in the classroom. Yeah. And that's, yeah, yeah that's a And yeah, those, a those kids are getting it at home, and then right. they're going to bring it to school, and they're going to look at your kids differently. And mm. ultimately, unfortunately, we've got to get to a right. point where, and, and that's what representation can do, actually. One, yeah. of, one of the studies that was done, or quite a few studies have looked at the way that movies and television and content actually um, changes attitudes and behaviors. And one thought is it's not direct. It's not like you watch it and you immediately go, okay, I'm going to change. You know, mm-hmm. It is that it gives you a different perception of social norms. So mm-hmm. like with Glee, for example, then all of a sudden the social norm was, you know, look at this wide group of kids. They're all different kinds, all different sexual orientations, and they're all great. That's the norm. There's nothing weird. That person isn't strange. That person isn't different. And then all of a sudden kids start embracing that and feeling comfortable. So if we saw representation of kids boys dancing and dresses and you know and people started ex- and we are starting to yeah, see yeah we are it. starting to see it, which is great. isn't like um mm-hmm. who's the guy billy parker or the guy that oh billy porter yeah porter, on yes. uh, pose yeah yes. so yeah, exactly absolutely. we yeah. are starting to see it but mm-hmm. we need to bring that down to kids as well right um so another question um from facebook from louise landry mm-hmm. how can storytellers access research well, through the Center for <laughs> Scholars and <laughs> Storytelling. I mean, no, one of the great things that you've been doing is putting up, you know, research insights. You know, um, I think one of the goals of the Center uh, is also to connect storytellers with academics, you know, uh, so you two can directly, you know, collaborate. You, know, you can get information, you know, um, directly from um, and through the Center. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, like in the old days, look, you know, I'll be honest, like when I wrote SWAT, you know, I had to rely on the producers in the studios, like, hey, hook me up with the police department. Hook me up. Yeah. So in the old days, it used to be, it was either family friend or, you know, yeah. someone you went to high school with that you would yeah. get the research from. But now we have resources like the center that can put you in touch with people who are at the top of their field yeah. in the, you know, this research yeah. and give you these sort of nuggets that'll be well, great for your scripts. And there's also, like, so we have our story insights. There's mm-hmm. also the Science and Entertainment Exchange. Right. They do mm-hmm. a lot of great work. There's Hollywood Health and Society. There's plenty of places that you can go and often get free consults. And then, obviously, lots of people hire consultants. We're trying to figure out a way to give the information as simply and easily to storytellers so it can scale so and that they can do it as one writer said i just want this information at three in the morning when i'm in my pajamas right i mean i'm married to a writer i know they don't want to leave the house a lot Mm -hmm. so it's it's a lot of um it's heavy lifting to meet with a consultant especially consultant who may not understand what your job is um so we're trying to shape that and help um academics share the information in a a content creator friendly way Um, but we have a ways to yeah. go. And I think we're, we'll embed the links to yep. yeah, not only you know, CSS, but these other you know, science and yep. film exchange, all yep. the other things. So, yep. you know, as, yeah, if you want to pursue you know, uh, further research and, you know, um, with those sites, you can. Yep. And yep. you can always email us and ask us yeah. as well. 
Um, so please, we only have a few more minutes. So please, oh, if you, I go? know, where did the time <laughs> go? Uh, if you have more questions, you have a few more minutes to. There's a little bit of a lag, so you better put it in now. Mm-hmm. Um, but you want to go yeah. ahead and um, read yeah, that and question? then should we just, you know, um, if you. If you had any problems with the live stream, you oh. know, if you're just catching us now, we put in, we're putting up the whole thing yep. on the center website, so you'll be able to not only access it today, tomorrow, you know, whatever yep. you want, and hopefully it'll be a helpful future resource for you. So, um, let's see, another question. So, from Facebook, uh, from Alejandra Diaz de Leon, uh, Yalda, you mentioned YouTube content creators earlier, so it got me thinking. Do you plan on expanding your work on CSS to reach out to YouTube creators and influencers? Since they can have so much influence, do you think they should be held responsible for the images and stories they're putting online? Well, I mean, that's always the challenge for any content creator. I mean, we have freedom of speech, right? Right. And sanity, not censorship, is a motto of common sense. I totally agree with it. Um, I don't think... Um, by punishing our motto is let's use the carrot, not the stick. Let's inspire people to do the right thing that, rather than punish them for doing the wrong thing. Um, we believe, George and I were in the industry, we, you know, we wanted to do the right thing. And if we can give them the tools and the ways to do the right thing, storytellers will do it. Um, so, but we do believe YouTube influencers are huge. They're really important. In fact, I was at YouTube two days ago. <laughs> I'm actually on the YouTube Family and Kids Council. Um, we really believe that YouTube is a very, very powerful uh, mechanism for kids. Many of them watch that more than anything else. And they're working hard because they realize they need to, um, you know, to, to take the responsibility, YouTube does, um, to help their creators who they, you know, basically it's a very different model than a studio where you hire and you own the IP. Right. You know, the creator in YouTube has that IP. Um, so so they, um, they're working very, very hard to make sure that they're helping their creators have resources that help them understand how to be responsible for the power they have on YouTube. And we're hoping to work with them on that. Um, So we've been working with Disney, myself, and a pediatrician, Dr. Cara Natterson, on um, giving lessons to talents and and content creators about how to be responsible um, storytellers, and we're hoping to offer that to other people. So let's keep reading since okay. we're getting some questions. All right. Um, blue is you or me? Uh, I think you read to me if it's blue. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> From Instagram by Chloe, uh-huh. Chloe U99. How important is likability in a character as opposed mm-hmm. to relatability? Brilliant question. That's, yep. Now, um, <laughs> well, again, likeabil- relatability is always much more important because, you know, storytelling, the, big, you know, the greatest power about you know, storytelling in film is empathy. You know, if you can relate to a character, if you can empathize with a character, you can understand that character. You may not agree with what the character is doing, but if you understand what the character wants, if you understand the character's journey, then yeah, you're you're gonna get be interested in the story and some attachment. Likeability is harder because, you know, how do you gauge that? You know, um, what I like may be completely different than what you like. Yeah. You know, um, and that's where you start to get into dangerous traps when you try to mandate. Or you know, um, enumerate what is likable because yeah, yeah they, look, we all have different tastes. You know, yeah, um, yeah, like you know, some people like spicy food, some people don't. Yeah. you know, it doesn't mean you know it's not a judgment call. You know, so yeah, if you try to write to likability again, you know, what are you writing to? Because 
you know, I don't know what you like. You know, I know what I like, yeah. so that's the only thing I can do. What I can hope to do is like, look, I will tell you why I like spicy food, and if you relate to that, yeah. then it makes the story much more impactful. So, I mean, to me, relatability mm -hmm. is right. identification yes. with the character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah. there's a lot of studies on that if right. anyone's interested. <laughs> it's funny because there's so much research and communications about the ways that stories work, identification right. with character, mm -hmm. trans um, transposing yourself into another place. Um, and it's just something that intuitively storytellers know. It's not mm -hmm. even so, like academics study it, storytellers right. know it. <laughs> and that's sort of the premise of our center too is mm -hmm. that storytellers have an off a lot to offer researchers. We, you know, storytellers can help researchers design experiments that would be useful in their day-to-day -day process. Right. So or even help get information across yeah. in a way that sticks. Yeah, with, exactly, you know, all, exactly. Yeah, with readers yeah. and an audience. Yeah. You know, yeah. Well, academics get, I think they understand that storytellers could take their research right. and spread it, yep. but they don't understand that storytellers understand um, can offer a lot to the research process. Yep. A lot of them don't. That they, right. that the research design, if you do mm -hmm. it together in an interdisciplinary way, it's mm -hmm. probably going to be more powerful. Mm -hmm. Okay, yes. you read that right. one, right? Okay. Or is so, that to me? Yeah, uh, yeah from okay. Facebook by Lisa Caruso. How do you get buy-in from the network streamer studios on the importance of impact on attitudes, behaviors, <laughs> so they're not concerned that it's too mission-oriented and could compromise the entertainment value. Oh boy, wow, that is the question. big <laughs> that's question. It's a holy grail, isn't it? <laughs> we we try to smuggle the message in. We try to tell them that their mm -hmm. audience is diverse. Their audience cares about social impact. You know, we give them all those kinds of statistics in the in our 13 Reasons Why campaign. What we're actually going to try to do mm -hmm. is look at where the conversation is online. So if it's around depression, while they're watching the show or mental health. We're going to look for certain pieces of content. Then we're going to go to Netflix and say, look, your audience is talking about this stuff. If we give them some information around it, it will only expand the reach of your audience. You know, um, right. you know sometimes if they work with the right groups and get buy-in early on, like Hidden Figures, mm -hmm. you know, got, got buy-in from Black Girls Code, um, you know, early on, then those people can be your evangelists. Um, you know, ultimately the story has to be the story. If it's right. too didactic and, I mean, that's why when academics often tell stories they're not great, um, it is going to flop and right. that's not going to be of any use. Let the storytellers do what they do and feed them the information that will help them make their story resonate with their audience. But yeah, that's always no, the challenge. It, it's always hard, yeah. As a writer, you know, you, you try to, okay, look, I will tell the story, I'll leave it to the producer or the executive or marketing to figure out the best way to push the story through the system yeah. to get it made. Yeah, and look, these are now big companies. They're yeah. giant, obviously, look, they're there for the bottom line. Yep. So if you can present it in a way, spin it in a way that's like, look, diversity translates to more eyeballs, which translates to yep. more money, then that's the way you sort well, of and sneak it in, I guess. CAA right? has mm -hmm. done studies. Right. I think the Inclusionistas have done studies. Yeah. Gina Davis has done great oh, yeah. studies. No, I mean, yep. there's so many studies that now show that. Um, data is a really good way. Exactly. Our, our study, another study we're doing on unconscious bias is we're showing what happens if you get it wrong. Like if you make a mistake and you cast the wrong person or you don't have the right um, writing team, how does that impact your bottom line? So the more you can talk about money, obviously, right, exactly. the better. But write the story first. 
then sort of back your yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't let the cart yeah. lead the horse yeah. yeah write the story and then figure out the elements that you can use to sort of push it through to yeah, yeah. I mean it's like always the yeah the challenge of yeah. making a movie yeah, yeah, yeah. so um, let's see from Instagram by it's just Dasha what current shows you personally feel have the most positive impact on audiences in your opinion hmm. Uh, well, I loved wow. Andy Mac, okay. um, which was a show at Disney. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, um, like uh, The Fosters is a great show. Yeah. Um, Good Trouble Now. There's um, what's the NBC show? Uh, it's mm-hmm. what? Huh? This is Us. This Amazing is us. Yeah, I love that. show. Mm-hmm. Um, the only problem with some of those shows is they're sort of some of them preach to the converted. So, mm-hmm. ironically, I actually really liked Roseanne before it canceled because um, it smuggled the message in and was playing to a different audience, mm-hmm. but it was smuggling in a, in a message about immigration, about all of us being the same, about inclusion, and it was likely getting to an audience that may not necessarily think that. So right. I think those are the kinds of things I'd like to measure and understand better. Yeah, no, that's great. Okay, from Instagram by Three Fosh Papa. How can diversity be accomplished in globally distributed content that needs to aim for the lowest common ground? Wow. Okay. Um, again, you know, I, I don't know if you can write diversity. You know, um, like John Cho, the actor, is you know very fond of saying, "Look, you know, if I take a look at a script that reads Asian or Korean American, you know, he usually passes because you know he wants a character." That's not just reduced to race, yeah. you know? Yeah. You want a character that's fully developed. You want a character that's a dad, Good that's point. a brother, that is a struggling executive or a successful writer, what what have you. You, know, you want to write a multi-dimensional character and then ideally find the best actor to convey that character. And yes, if you cast accordingly, you know, again, you know, studies are now showing that diversity does you know, translate to box office dollars, then that will always, you know, um, be the way to sort of again sneak diversity in, but ultimately, you know, the character has to be a real three-dimensional, well-rounded, interesting character, you know, um, that will, you know, get people excited about wanting to follow this character through whatever adventure or journey um, they're going through. And I would also just say, you know, diversity and inclusion, um, apparently Shonda Rhimes does not like the term diversity, Mm -hmm. um, probably, possibly because of that. Right. You know, you don't want to just add one character and then say, I checked my box. Yep. Um, The, the, um, reason, uh, the ways to do it is not just on camera. You can do it behind camera. You can do it with yeah. the below the line. You can do it um, all sorts of different ways. So um, think of it as a very wide tent and many, many different ways. And if you have a diverse group of writers, they will naturally help your content on camera um, be more diverse and inclusive. Right. The lowest common ground often isn't that bad like right we are in a world that is very diverse and America's becoming more and my more diverse <clears throat> and you can accomplish a lot with these shows that lots of people watch the mm-hmm. challenge is to get the people creating those shows to recognize their power um, and hopefully you know work towards trying to do that you know reality TV shows right. I think there's <laughs> you know there's a great great deal of content out there that we could be making more impact with That concludes this episode of the Scholars and Storytellers podcast. A very special thanks to Dr. Yalda T. Uhls and George Huang for joining us in that conversation. If you have a minute, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. 
And if you have any friends who you think would like the show, share it with them. If you're interested in learning more about our work, please visit us at scholarsandstorytellers.com and follow our social media accounts by searching Center for Scholars and Storytellers. This podcast was produced by the Center for Scholars and Storytellers with special thanks to the UCLA Film School and Nier Liebenthal. Goodbye for now, and thank you.